Please turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, this evening we're going to consider the righteousness which is by faith. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through to 7, we're looking at this evening. I'll read those verses now. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul started that chapter by saying that he could wish himself accursed or separated from the Lord Jesus Christ for his countrymen, for fellow Jews, according to the flesh. There's uh, there's a distinction made in chapter 9 between Jews according to the flesh and spiritual Jews. Paul then went on to, he spent the rest of the chapter teaching that not all of physical Israel will be saved because not all of physical Israel is spiritual Israel. Not all physical Jews are spiritual Jews. Putting it another way, not all Jews are, have circumcised hearts. They, they may be circumcised of the flesh, at least the men are, but um, not all of them are circumcised of the heart. He explained that promises of spiritual blessing were given to Abraham and to his descendants. But not all who descend from Abraham are his children. The great mistake that the Jews made, and possibly they still do make, is to assume that because they can trace their um, ancestry to or to Abraham, because they're descendants of Abraham, that they, they must have God as their father. And I showed you what the Lord Jesus Christ said about that in John chapter 8, speaking to unbelieving Jews, and he said, your father is the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. And when you read the Bible, you, you can safely say that anyone who is not regenerate has the, has the devil as their father. And the lust of their father they will do. That doesn't mean to say that everyone who's not trusting in Jesus goes out of their way each day to bow down to the devil and, and so on and, and, um, they have, um, some kind of memorial to the, the devil or anything, but they will. By sinful nature, people will do the lust of the devil. The devil is the prince of this world. He's the god of this world. And a person who is not in Christ is ultimately serving the god of this world, the devil. So 
So not all of Israel are heirs and children of the promise of God. Not all are counted for Abraham's seed, spiritual seed that is. Examples were given such as the two grandsons of Abraham, Jacob and Esau. They were twins and yet God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, it hated, it's not really hated. Well, it is. If you, you check it out, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. In other words, twins there, one of them, Jacob, is the spiritual seed with, and an heir of the promise of God, whereas his brother most certainly was not. Not all are counted for Abraham's seed. Still in chapter 9, Paul went on to teach that there are Gentiles as well as Jews who are heirs of the promise of God and Abraham's seed in accordance with God's sovereign choice. And you can almost imagine Jews sticking their fingers in their ears at this point when when you begin to mention, well, it's actually, it's not all the Jews which are heirs of the promise. It's only a remnant throughout history, a tiny remnant, And furthermore, the same applies to the Gentile nations. God has his chosen ones from Jews and Gentiles alike. That truth about Gentiles as well as Jews being chosen is also taught very clearly in another one of Paul's epistles. It brings it all together wonderfully in Galatians where Paul said in chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter who you are, you're one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In other words, that if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, by the, by the grace of God, then you are Abraham's seed and an heir of the promise. So you, uh, whether you're Jew or Gentile, and I'm looking at Gentiles in here, if you're a Christian, you can legitimately say, I am Abraham's seed. Why is that? Because I'm trusting in Jesus as my saviour from sin. That's why. Now coming to chapter 10, the apostle looks at the means by which Abraham's seed are saved and justified. It is by faith in Jesus. Whether those being saved are Jews, whether they're Gentiles, it makes no difference. However, first of all, Paul looks at the unbelief of national Israel. This is something that he's already alluded to in chapter 9 verses 30 to 32. We looked at it last week. We didn't really spend too much time on it. It's worth looking at that again now because Paul will expand upon that. Look at chapter 9, verse 30 to 32. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness, have not attained to the law of righteousness. They failed. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, 
but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offence, and whosoever believeth on him, that's the stumbling stone, whoever, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So we saw last week that the Lord Jesus Christ is a stumbling stone to the Jews. They're busy seeking to establish their own righteousness through works of the law instead of simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. At which point I'm actually thinking, I've pretty much finished everything I, I wanted to say this evening. But We'll look at the text anyway, but I've summarised everything uh, by way of introduction. It's all about trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. This would no doubt be offensive to Paul's countrymen. So at the very outset of chapter 10 and verse 1, Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? By saying those words, Paul was once again, his, um, he was once again affirming his love for his fellow Israelites according to the flesh just like he did at the beginning of chapter 9. He was showing a genuine love and a genuine concern for the Jewish people, despite the clear teaching in Scripture that it is only those who are ordained by God in eternity, who are ordained to eternal life, who will, in time to come, in the fullness of time, they will be saved from their sins, they will be justified Paul prayed for Israel despite their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a lesson to be learnt by us who are saved by the grace of God that we too should never cease to pray for people, never cease to pray for the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of who they are and regardless of their level of opposition to Jesus and his gospel. Remember that Paul, who prayed for the unbelieving Jews, saying that he could wish himself accursed for them, he himself wasted the church before he became a Christian when he was a Pharisee. He went around locking people up simply because they were trusting in Jesus. Let's have a look at verses 2 and 3. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Is there anything wrong with having a zeal? There's nothing wrong with having a zeal, provided it's the right type of zeal. For example, in Titus chapter 2 verse 13 and 14, Paul said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, a special people, zealous of good works. 
the person who has been redeemed from all his sins and is now eagerly waiting day by day for the Lord Jesus Christ to return, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person who's saying, even so, come Lord Jesus, that person who is ushering it, who by his prayers is, is speeding the coming of Jesus, who knows that when Jesus will come, he will usher in new heavens, a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, something that us Christians are longing to be part of, the new heavens and the new earth, no more tears, no more sin. Won't it be wonderful, eh? And we look forward to that day uh, that Jesus has secured for us. Now that person ought to be zealous of good works, according to Titus. It's not that we make ourselves zealous in any way, but if you are someone who really is safe from your sin and you are looking to the heavens for Jesus to come again, you have a zeal of good works and that zeal proceeds from a genuine saving faith in Christ. However, the zeal of Israel was a faithless one. And that is because it was not according to knowledge. Paul had that kind of zeal before he became a Christian. He was most certainly a zealous man when he was a Pharisee. There's no getting away from it. He'd been brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a doctor of the law. He was taught according to the perfect manner of the law of his fathers. One might say that Paul had a very good knowledge of the law. And he was zealous towards God. However, for all of that zeal and for all of that knowledge, there's something he lacked. He knew not the righteousness of God, which is by faith in the finished work of the one whom he hated, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only had that been the case with Paul before his conversion, but also it was, and I believe it still is, the case with the Jews as a nation. They had failed to acknowledge a righteousness that has God as its author and the Son of God as its executor. It is a righteousness that has been seen in chapter 3 and verse 21, verse 24. The righteousness that they, that we, that uh, we uh, require, if you like, to be acceptable before God. Not the zeal and the knowledge of the Jews of old that Paul was addressing here. We've been through this time and again. Let me just read to you chapter 3, verse 21 to 24 again where it is written, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, a righteousness of God that is without the law, so it's without works of the law, it's a righteousness that you do not receive through your obedience to the law. Nevertheless, it is a righteousness that is revealed in the law and in the prophets. In other words, in the whole of the Old Testament. So where are we with this? 
But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, or in Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That righteousness or right standing and acceptance before God is received not by works of the law, but by faith. Even so, Israel sought to establish their own righteousness before God, not knowing that everything that they did, everything that they thought, was tainted by sin, as indeed it is with every one of us. As it is written in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We'll move on to verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. First of all, looking at verse 4, what do you imagine the end of the law is? What is the end of the law? What does that actually mean? And I would say, I suppose, it depends. If it's man's law, and it is not a reflection or in agreement with God's law, then the end of that law is evil. If it's simply man's law with no no um, agreement with God's law. For example, laws that, <coughs> laws that permit the killing of babies, what's the end of that kind of law? It's evil, period. However, if it is God's law, then it is all about love. The end of God's law is love. For example, Jesus asked a lawyer, what is written in the law? And the the lawyer answered correctly when he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbour as thyself. Thy neighbour. And that includes unborn babies, of course. God's law is all about love. That is the end of God's law, love. Since God's law is all about love, it is to be embraced. God's law is to be embraced. Again, we've seen all this. We've seen it in chapter 7, actually. Um, What do Christians do with God's law? Do they consign it to the rubbish bin because they're under grace? Most certainly not. God's law is perfect. Converting the soul to be be desired more than honey and the honeycomb, or sweeter than the honey and honeycomb. God's law is perfect because it comes from a perfect God. So it's to be embraced, and it is a good thing to be like the psalmist, who in Psalm 119 verse 97 said oh how I love thy law it is my meditation all the day yeah that's in the Old Testament Psalms but you know what there's nothing wrong with it being 
your words as well, if you really mean it. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Also, according to Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. Well, why wouldn't you when the end of God's law is love? The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of love, perfectly fulfilled the law's demands in his life and in his death. That is the clear teaching of scripture. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through to 9, the Apostle Paul said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also have highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Looking at verse 5. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. In this verse, Paul speaks of the righteousness which is of the law, and in so doing, he quotes Old Testament scripture, Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5, where it is written, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. There you are. Keep God's laws and you will live. Simple as that. However, it needs to be understood that eternal life by the law requires perfect obedience to it and the law knows no mercy. That is something I was talking about less than a week ago. Less than a week ago, when did we go out on the doors? Monday? Yeah, last Monday. Talking to a professing atheist on the doors knocking door to door and this professing atheist he argued about the unreasonableness of God as they do and he said it's unreasonable for God to expect perfect obedience to his law he scoffed at that and he thought it was ridiculous that we should be that God should expect us to be perfectly obedient is that right? Do you think that atheist was right? Is it a, is God setting the standard too high? Perfect obedience? In answer to that, it needs to be understood that anything less than perfect obedience means sin. If there's anything less than perfect obedience, that means that there is disobedience, sin. And why on earth should God who is holy and righteous and perfect in all his ways, countenance sin. Can you see how it is that God demands perfect obedience? Nothing less will do. Because he is God. 
The angels in heaven, they cover their faces in his presence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We don't scoff at God because he demands perfect obedience. However, there is a big problem with the righteousness which is of the law and the problem is not with the law. It's, the problem is not with God's demands for perfection. It is with us and with every child of Adam. All have transgressed God's law of love. All have sinned. All come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. I certainly know that with myself. And if we're being honest, we all know that. Every single person in this world would know that if they searched their heart and they were honest just for one moment that they all fall short of the glory of God. And that brings us to the righteousness which is of faith. Look at verses 6 and 7. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise... Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. As has already been considered, righteousness is all about fulfilling the law's demands, demands which are our duty of love to God. And to our neighbour. And we can't do it. None of us can. Fulfilling the law's demands and being acceptable to God. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has done precisely that. In verses 6 and 7, Paul gives the spiritual understanding of an Old Testament scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 11 through to 13, which speaks about the giving of the law. Those verses speak about the law, but Paul, he gives a spiritual understanding and he brings it round to Jesus, who is the end of the law for righteousness to them that believe. So Paul substitutes the Lord Jesus Christ and the uh, the end of the law for righteousness in these verses. The Old Testament speaks about bringing the commandment down. However, where Paul says, who shall bring Christ down from heaven? You do not need to bring him down from heaven. The Father has already sent him. Jesus has already come about 2,000 years ago. And Christ does not need to be raised from the dead, as he said himself in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Therefore, everything has been done. Jesus has descended into this dark world of sin. He has died on a wooden cross. He has risen from the dead. God has achieved all those things and to God be the glory.
Can you see there why, going back up to verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. It's not about works, it's about trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. If That is to, how to be justified before God. Not through obedience to the law, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has fulfilled the law's demands in life and in death. Last of all, the righteousness which is of faith is unto all who believe that the Son of God became flesh and fulfilled the law's demands on their behalf, on your behalf. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through to 7, Paul said, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, or born of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he came into this world, and although he is very God, he subjected himself to God's law. Didn't need to, but he did. Subjected himself to God's law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God have sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant or slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And as for what it means to be redeemed by Jesus, because he came into this world made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. What does that redemption mean? Well, if you're in Galatians, you just look at the previous chapter, chapter 3 and verse 13, and Paul has already said, Christ have redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That redemption was when Jesus had had the iniquity of his people laid upon himself and he drunk the cup of God's wrath. Putting all those verses from, from Galatians together, what we have is the Son of God coming down from heaven, subjecting himself to the law throughout his earthly sojourn. In life, he fulfilled the demands of the law on behalf of the heirs of God in other words, the elect of God. And at the cross, he sacrificially, he was sacrificially punished and put to death, bearing and taking away their sins. And now the Lord Jesus Christ is seated in heaven, highly exalted, having risen from the dead. What all that means for everyone who believeth is that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. Their acceptance before him, before God rather, is in Christ. They stand before God washed and purified in the blood of Jesus and covered with his righteousness. There's no other way. Adam and Eve, they didn't enjoy such blessings before they sinned, that is. You think of Adam and Eve walking around in the Garden of Eden before sin came into the world. 
Do you think they were in a one better position than you are if you're a Christian? I, re- I remember uh, watching and listening to R.C. Sproul explain this one day and it really did encourage me and I hope it's an encouragement to you. Thinking of Adam and Eve before they sinned, they were in a state of innocence before God, a state of innocence. But then what happened? Sin came into the world through disobedience, their disobedience, and they went from um, innocent to guilty sinners. Yeah? You, dear Christian, you never started off as innocent. Adam and Eve did, but you didn't. You can never, you can, you can never claim to have been innocent. What is it that um, David said that he was shapen in iniquity and in sin did his mother conceive him? He, in conception, he was a sinner, and that applies to each one of us: conceived and born sinners, natural born, natural born sinners. So there never was a time when you or I could make that claim of being innocent before God. Even so, you have something infinitely and eternally greater than innocence. You have the righteousness of your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's far better. Infinitely greater to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We've been here before in our thoughts, several times in fact, in this epistle. It's as if Paul wants to hammer home the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That should tell you just how important it is. Finally, the good news for all who are who by the grace of God have come to realise that they are natural born sinners, is that Jesus and he alone has satisfied the law's demands and he has secured the Father's approval. Jesus has done it. The truth was and still is the stumbling block for Israel and for all who are trying and failing to establish their own righteousness. Jesus has done it all and all that is left is to believe and have forgiveness and everlasting life in him. I'll finish with some words from a hymn by Robert Murray McShane. Unfortunately, we don't seem to have it, well, we don't have it in our hymn book. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fears shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Sikenu, my saviour must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah Sikenu is all things to me. Amen.